You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. If you're white and straight, you are not welcome in certain areas of the University of Minnesota. That is uh, not an exaggeration. That is quite literally true. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com, and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream the program. You can also catch up on the podcast there now in your iHeartRadio app. It's right there, channel for closing argument. Just do a little search for it and you'll find all of our past shows. If you've been using Spreaker or iTunes or any other podcatcher, you can still catch up with the program there as well. But uh, it's really nice having that channel, that recognition. I just It makes me feel personally special that they saw fit to give us a channel. You know, the morning show's had one for a while. It's nice to get some love from the, uh, the iHeart folks. 651-989-5855 if you want to join the program. 9 to 11 weeknights is when we're on. Brad Omlin is taking your calls. From the Daily Caller, the University of Minnesota is banning white and straight students from a safe space campus or on campus, according to a Thursday report. The school's Gender and Sexuality Center for Queer and Trans Life. I, what's the, is there like, is that a, a building? It must be. There was like I remember in college, like we had a like a diversity center. Right. I'm just wondering what the architecture of this thing is. The 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 gender and sexuality center for queer and trans life. That's probably gotta pretty be socialist. <laughs> probably pretty socialist. Yeah. Anyway, they host Tongues Untied, a space in which people can congregate to discuss the impact of sexuality, race, and gender according to campus reform. But not everyone is invited. For our allies, we do appreciate your voices and commitment to dismantling racism and homophobia. However, please note that this is a space created for LGBTQIA and or same gender loving people of color. The space's description reads, I, there's at least half, well, a little less than half of those letters. I have no idea what they're even referencing. If you identify as a queer or trans indigenous person of color we welcome you to take part of our discussions states the group's facebook page i i picture people standing just outside the door wringing their hands uh, darting their eyes back and forth genuinely confused as to whether or not they identify as what we just read here a white privilege checklist found earlier in 2017 at the university of minnesota contained statements such as I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. And whether I use checks, credit cards, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of financial responsibility, so forth and so on. So here's the deal on this. You know, we, we can talk about the, the hypocritical nature of this particular form of discrimination, and there's certainly something to be said there. But it's something we've probably heard before and thought before. You know, clearly it goes without saying at this point 
that the left is totally hypocritical when it comes to their perceptions and expressions of bigotry. Uh, it's 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 only in one direction. You can only be racist if you're a white person. You can only be you know, biased against sexual orientation if you're a heterosexual, right? It's a one-way discrimination screen door, and it doesn't go in the other. It doesn't flow in the other direction. We could talk about that, but what I think is the more interesting angle on this is that I I believe that this type of discrimination in a perfect world ought to be totally acceptable ought to be 100 acceptable no matter who is doing it and no matter their rationale justification whether it is rational or irrational it's called the freedom of association it's called i get to choose who i want to hang out with and on what terms and so long as the prerequisite here is owning or having licensed access to the venue, having the permission of the owner to use the venue. If it's your venue, either because you own it or because you have permission to be there, you get to set the terms. The owner gets to determine who has access and on what terms. And, you know, so long as that's the case, I don't have a problem with this whatsoever. The problem is, is that we don't live in that world, right? Certain forms of, quote, discrimination, unquote, are banned and frowned upon and can get people kicked out of school and other forms are publicly funded and encouraged. What we need to do, you know, to solve this problem, to equalize it is again, going to our last segment, privatize education, get the government completely out of it. And then uh, you, you won't have the, the uh, hypocrisy haunting us anymore. Also in the same category of discriminatory behavior and addressing discrimination through public policy, this source, Route 50, which I don't, I don't even know how I came across this, but the headline was fascinating. Ban the box laws are hurting black applicants. If, you, if you're not familiar, ban the box is this movement, and it's been successful here in the state of Minnesota. This is now law in Minnesota. It's the idea that employers should not be able to ask applicants whether or not they have a criminal history, at least on the application. You can't have the box saying, do you have any criminal history on the application? Now, you can ask them once they come in for an interview, but you, you can't. The, the idea is to try to prevent employers from pre-screening those with a criminal history from potential job uh, openings. Over the past decade, this from Route 50, laws that limit the ability of employers to ask about a job applicant's criminal record have become popular across the United States. More than half of U.S. states have now implemented some form of this rule. These ban-the-box policies named after the tick box on many job applications that ask about criminal records are promoted by social justice organizations as a way to help formerly incarcerated people get jobs and, as a consequence, reduce their odds of returning to prison. Unfortunately, the evidence suggests that ban-the-box policies don't work. In fact, an emerging body of research suggests that they may have harmful unintended consequences. Imagine that. Not only do the rules appear to intensify racial discrimination in hiring, they don't seem to be helping job applicants with criminal records. 
Jennifer Dolick, an economist at the University of Virginia who studies crime and discrimination, thinks the problem with ban-the-box policies is that they are a quick fix to a complex problem. Imagine that, a progressive government solution that's a Band-Aid on a broken leg. She believes taking away information from employers is exactly the wrong idea. Rather, policies intended to help the formerly incarcerated find jobs should offer employers more information about why a person with a criminal record is worth hiring. Now, there, there are a couple of issues here uh, that, that I have with this ban-the-box thing. First of all, it's, it's pretty typical of the left to think that depriving people of information is somehow going to lead to them making better decisions. That's the underlying premise of virtually all their economic interventions, particularly price controls. We talked before about the nature of price. You know, price is a is a accurate a in a free market. It's a precise signal, uh, in, in an objective measurement of the intersection between the subjective value of the purchaser and the subjective value of the producer of a good or service. You know, what are you willing to fork over? for this thing that I am offering, right? And what am I willing to uh, let go of it for? That The answer to those two questions, that's price. And it's a, it's a precise signal of the actual economic value of a product or service in a given context. The idea of the left is, let's, let's control that for whatever their premise is in order to, to promote racial harmony or economic fairness or whatever their premise is. Let's control that. And therefore, what the effect of it is, distort the signal so that we no longer know what the, the information that price conveys. And somehow that's going to result in better economic choices. When you do that universally, you end up with no bread on the shelves in Venezuela. Well, economists and investors say that like those who have an advantage have access to more information and can make sense of it. Putting the box on the application is more information, and the application itself, the form, is a way to process that information. And if you take away the way, like hiring, you could say that hiring someone with a criminal record is a risk. That's why you know the left thinks that employers don't hire them, but employers understanding that hiring felons and reducing recidivism rate is a good social value to espouse, regardless of whether or not the government. Uh, enforces it, they are willing to take that risk given that they have that information. But without it, they can't make a discernment. There you go. Let's go to you know, anytime Jamar calls in, we got to get him up. And as usual, he picks a couple minutes before the break. Welcome to the show, Jamar. Welcome. You got to stop taking me before the break because you know I got too much. Uh, but seriously, Walter, here again, is a, you, you're being typical, speaking of typical actions by the left, you're being typical because all I hear Republicans always doing is blaming instead of looking at the situation the way it really is. How Tell me how it really is, my, Jamar. How about my party decided that we didn't want to continue to hamper those that are trying to reactivate themselves back into society by having an employer uh, look, at their pre, look at their past and say, oh, no. This guy's a felon. Oh, this guy's a felon. Nope, she doesn't. Well, but the, we hold on, hold on. All, but no, Were just because you you're you're brushing past is... you're brushing past the key point. What's the key what? Point? No, 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 no. This is everything. Where do you get to decide on what basis somebody enters into a relationship? 
By what authority do you get to intervene in an employer's consideration of whether or not they bring on an employee? You're you're presuming that you have any... Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Right whatsoever to say anything about it, and you don't. So if 10 years ago I committed a crime and I have been a great citizen since then, so so this employer, this job that I'm qualified for, and because I made a mistake 10 years ago, I should no longer be uh, thought about for that job because of an, uh, a childish or an immature situation that I probably put myself in. You don't seem to care about that. Neither does your party. Everything, is, everything you just said is your judgment. And my point no, is, no, no, it is. It is. It absolutely no, is. No. You, you deserve to be considered, you know, you did something a long time ago. It doesn't really matter. You are imposing your judgment upon the employer. And that is not really? something you so get to do. Doing? What's the employer doing, Walter? They're using their judgment to make a decision about no, their relationships. They're against me because of something that may have happened. And again, if you stop looking at it through a through a partisan lens and stop blaming the Democrats. What, what the are you talking about, partisan? I haven't I, even. I, really? That's all you. I, I, for the, for the, the whole time I've heard you bring this conversation, all I've heard you say is the left, the left, the left. Instead of looking at things the way. There are leftists in both parties, buddy. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Really? All, all you want to do is, again, continue to blame instead of looking at... So let me ask you a question, Walter. You, you don't know any felons? You don't know any former felons that deserve a chance, another second chance in life, a third or fourth chance in life? You don't know any of those people? I do. Okay, so let me ask you a question. So that felon that you know should continuously be unemployed because of the mistake he or she made, Walter? That is not a question that I get to no, no, answer again, because it's go, not my job to give! There you go avoiding it. The I'm not avoiding it. Maybe I'm not. I, what you are doing is you're laying claim, you Jamar. You, you are laying answer. claim to other people's lives. No, you are laying claim to the judgment of employers. You are laying claim to the ownership of their businesses. Thanks, Jamar. The, the, this, this is the fundamental premise of the left. There I go being partisan, Jamar. The fundamental premise of the left is that they get to make your decisions for you. And it, that is as far as the conversation needs to go. I'm not going to go to your down your rabbit hole of who deserves what and whether people deserve second chances and what have you. That is the argument that you try to convince the person of who actually owns the decision. And that's the employer. It's not you. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. One of the other things that's demonstrated uh, by this ban the box scenario, a law which it is the law here in the state of Minnesota, a law which 
prohibits employers from including on employment applications a question asking applicants whether or not they have a criminal history. What this does is it doesn't, and, and, and again, and you know, I, you're going to have to, you're just going to have to deal with it, Jamar. I'm, I'm being partisan again by evoking the left. What the left loves to do is try to deal with problems by suppressing their symptoms instead of going after their root, right? So they see something which they perceive to be unfair, such as discrimination in the workplace, and they pass a law saying you can't have a box on an application, and then they wipe their hands and they go, we're done, problem solved, everything's better now, sunshine and rainbows and unicorn farts, everything's grand, because we banned something. We banned the box. It actually, that's actually in the, that's the title of the proposal. Ban the box. Ban, that's, that's one of their tools for making the world a better place. Ban it. Ban something. Now, let, let's just forgo the argument over whether or not it's appropriate for government to be involved in the suppression of discrimination business, to, whether government should have anything to say about that whatsoever. The idea that banning the box does anything at all to actually address discrimination is utterly absurd. It's, it's the water balloon effect. You, you push it away from this obvious place, right, the, the placement of the box on the application, and it just it, it doesn't go away. It just moves around somewhere else. And what they've discovered, as indicated in this uh, piece here at Route 50, is that suddenly, instead of controlling for people who actually have criminal histories, employers who care about that sort of thing suddenly find themselves a little less inclined to hire anybody from certain racial groups. So somebody like me, right, who goes in and applies for something, and, you know, they don't know what the answer to the question is with me. But they might assume, well, you know, he's he doesn't pass the uh, paper bag test, so there's a chance. Could be it could be a little sticky in the fingers. Well, that's the same thing with like. Uh, I remember I was re- listening to a Freakonomics uh, episode a few years ago, and it talked about how people with black names, quote unquote, uh, are more like if you search people with black names in a Google search, it is right. more likely to find to pop up with like search X for criminal records right. versus a right. white name is just, you know, more uh, innocuous results, you know, just like yeah. maybe their Facebook profile. Right. So right. it shows you that that discriminant, like that uh, bias already exists in the market. And you could probably say the same for, and like, uh, who is it? Cal Penn is his name. Yeah. Uh, right. The actor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When he changed, his name was Cal, like his legal name is actually Cal Penn. Like that's his first name. Right. But when he changed his name to Cal Penn to sound more white, you right. could say, right. uh, he got more acting jobs. Absolutely. So so that, that bias already exists in the system. And right. by giving employers less information, right. you are depriving them, like, they take that risk because they understand that it's a good social value right. to hire somebody who might have a felony to reduce the recidivism rate. But without that information, they can't take advantage of it. I mean, how far do you want to take this premise? Should we send applicants into the interview with a bag over their head, right? Or, or in a burqa, head to toe, so that you just, you don't, and a voice changer. So you, there's nothing you can assume about them. 
We don't know whether they're male or female, black or white. You know, put them on stilts. Don't know if they're tall or short. Don't know anything about them whatsoever. In fact, just forgo the whole interview process. We'll just take, you know, 50 random names from the community, put them on a wheel of fortune, spin the thing, and wherever the needle falls, that's your new employee for your specialized uh, job that you have posted. That sounds like a fair way to do it to me. It's utterly absurd that you're you're going to serve some sort of objective, rational good by depriving people of information, and they will find a way to figure it out anyway. And they don't even have to go that far. The interview. Oh, hey, by the way, have you ever had? A, have you ever been in jail? Have you ever been convicted of a crime? In the interview, they can ask. That the law doesn't exclude like no. interviews. Nope. Oh, okay. No. Okay. That's how. That's how absurd it is. Because and the and the argument is that well you know at least this way we get them into the door so that you can judge them on their on the merits of the interview. Now, listen, I think I, I like the idea of interviewing people rather than dismissing them out of hand as a result of what you see in black and white on their resume. Like generally speaking, I think it's a good business practice to do that. That said, I don't get to tell people how to run their businesses. Because I don't own them. I don't own either their businesses or their person, which would be the prerequisite to have some sort of conjured authority to dictate that sort of thing. How government wrecked the gas can. This from the Foundation for Economic Education. I love this piece from Jeffrey Tucker. The gas gauge broke. There was no smartphone app to tell me how much was left, so I ran out. I had to call the local gas station to give me enough to get on my way. The gruff but lovable attendant arrived in his truck and started to pour gas on my car's tank and pour, or in my car's tank and pour and pour. Hmm, I just hate how slow these gas cans are these days, he grumbled. There's no vent on them. That sound of frustration in this guy's voice was strangely familiar. The grumble that comes when something that used to work but doesn't work anymore for some odd reason we can't identify. I'm pretty alert to such problems these days. Soap doesn't work. Toilets don't flush. Clothes washers don't clean. Light bulbs don't illuminate. Refrigerators break too soon. Paint discolors. Lawnmowers have to be hacked. It's all caused by idiotic government regulations that are wrecking our lives one consumer product at a time, all in ways we hardly notice. It's like the barbarian invasions that wrecked Rome, taking away the gains we've made in bettering our lives. It's the bureaucrats' way of reminding market producers and consumers who is in charge. You can catch the rest of the piece at Foundation for uh, Economic Education, How Government Wrecked the Gas Can, and you can take from that intro uh, the premise, and he provides more supporting evidence for this claim. And, yeah, that's, that is – look, it's not that government does that sometimes when it intervenes in the market. That is the only possible outcome of government intervention. Why? Because government is force. That's what government is. That's its defining aspect. That's what differentiates it from, I don't know, a private club, right? A, a, a congregation, a corporation, a family, a community. You don't have the legal ability to go out and point a gun at somebody and tell them what they must do or prevent them from doing something that they want, or seizing their property and calling it a tax. You don't have the ability to do that. Government does. That's what makes government, government. And so when it engages in its 
manipulations and its encroachments upon the market, it is inherently bringing a destructive force to bear. That's all it can do is destroy value. That's all it can do. That's why it shouldn't intervene at all. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Ben, we'll get to you when we return. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. I see your sister in a Sunday We're talking about this uh, trend that's been sweeping the nation of states passing ban-the-box laws. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. That's where you prevent employers from asking on their employment applications whether or not the applicant has a criminal history. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com, and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream the program. You can also catch up on the podcast now, right there in the app, iHeartRadio. Just go to podcast, do a little search for closing argument, you can have your one-stop shop for all things us. 9 to 11 weeknights, that's when you can catch us live, 651-989-5855, Brad Omlin taking your calls Ben in Anoka, welcome to the program. Walter, how are you? Good. Um, you've heard of uh, Angie's Hit List and Home Destroyer and ThumbsDown.com. The real websites are Angie's List and Home Advisor and Thumbtack.com. Yeah, yeah, complaint websites. Well, okay, well, those websites, I've gone to them and I've looked at what they've said about I, personally, I think it's, I mean, this is almost conspiratorial, but the things that are written about certain people, whether they be plumbers or electricians, I almost think it's like a conspiracy against a small town businessman hmm. to try to try to knock them off their perch mm-hmm. and so that uh, places like Service Master and the big Wall Street firms can come in and and dominate after a, a kind of a bloodbath has been created out there in America. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that I'd, I'd, I would like to think that people are smart enough to realize that 
nine out of 10 times, the person who goes to a site like that to write up a review is somebody who's hot and bothered about some specific personal anecdote, some complaint that they have. I've I've seen the type of setups where where people will leave a $100 bill. Like if you're in there doing plumbing work, Mm -hmm. they'll leave a $100 bill on the kitchen counter trying to get you to steal it. And I have told people, you know, I moved the hundred dollar bill and into the other room or whatever, and. and uh, so I'm 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 waiting for the tie-in to the ban the box thing. Well, this is this is kind of like a conspiracy almost against people out there, or or like the. Um, you know, and I have told people, you know, if you got a small business and a, and I've had it happen where a, like a woman would come out of, and this is going to sound crazy, but a woman would come out of a shower with, you know, something, you know, see-through on and uh-huh. come out while you're working on something and almost trying to set you up. And it's just like, you know, please get some clothes on, lady. And, you know, it's. I don't know. There's there's something crazy going on out there, and I don't trust those websites. And if you go read the commentary or what they say, I, I don't know. I just think the small the the small businessman has got the card stacked against them, and and uh, you really got to mind your p's and q's out there. That's what I would say. Good advice. Ben, appreciate your call. I kept waiting for that to develop into something that was more than just entertaining, but it certainly was entertaining. I mean, well, sites like that, like even Yelp and Google, it's whoever appears at the top of the listing is the person paying for the listing. So like big companies like Service Master or like Ben Franklin Plumbing are larger companies and have marketing people dedicated to dominating those areas that people are looking for information. Right. So it's not that there's a conspiracy. It's just that they're paying for it. Well, and that's, that's kind of ties into, you know, the, the point that I was trying to make is that I, I I would like to think, and maybe it's not the case now, but that it kind of goes with our general, uh, what I call the adolescence of the internet. The fact that in a lot of ways, we're only beginning to really understand how this technology is influencing our culture and influencing our economy that eventually people are going to come around to the realization that, uh, you know, a site like that, like you say, has more, it's not, you know, it's not run by angels, right? Like there's a reason why they put up the site. There's a reason why each individual user went on there and gave the review that they did. The company that I work for during the day, uh, as an independent contractor, I've Googled them and, 90 to 95 percent of the stuff that people have to say about them online is highly negative i'm talking about people who've done the job that i'm doing right oh you know they they screw you over this way they screw you over that way you know don't work for them blah 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 and their accounts don't jive with my experience at all and i can i can i guarantee you that if i if i were to look if i were to look into their personal experience i could attribute whatever it is that they're complaining about to their behavior, right? To not getting up and doing the work or to doing it poorly or whatever the case, not being sensible enough uh, to, to, to mind their P's and Q's to borrow, to borrow Ben's term uh, when, when it comes to you know, doing their own business. And that's the way it is. You know, there, there, there are people who the way that they cope with things not going their way 
is by trying to engage in some sort of public display of how they were offended. It, you go to your local community message board and you're going to see this left and right. And like he said, the, the local guy getting ragged on by people. Unfortunately, in the age of the internet, it's something you just have to learn to deal with. Well, and like a lot of people that I do this for at work, like they don't want the reviews because they think they're going to be negative. And yes, they, some some are, but people are smart enough to like read to critically read a review right. and think like that person right. was paid that that seems a little too duckies and bunnies like right. may, yeah, they were right. maybe paid yeah that person obviously has a gripe that's not valid to my concerns right um so like the, like if somebody had like a 4.1 and had a thousand reviews mm-hmm. or if somebody had 20 reviews and had a 4.8 mm-hmm. i might be a little bit more skeptical of just the 20 reviews yeah testimonials whether they're positive or negative should always be one part of your consideration when you're judging something whether it's a product or service a job opportunity or whatever the case may be because you have no idea who that person is who's giving the testimonial and what their motivation may not be or if it was just totally scripted and it's fake you have no idea let's go to mike in farmington welcome to the program uh, thanks for Taking my call, Walter. Anytime. Uh, I had a question. I know you were talking about this Obamacare and insurance earlier. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of things I wanted to touch upon. Is These Republicans who made such an issue of Obamacare during Obama's term, that they are going to do something about it. We're going to repeal this. We're going to get rid of this. A uh, couple questions there is, One, what's been going on for the last, well, since Obamacare was passed, why weren't these people getting to work and getting something prepared, having it ready to go, anticipating the response? In other words, being prepared to execute these uh, proclamations that they're going to do away with this. And then secondly, I'd like you to deliver the speech that when these guys go back to their district to get reelected, how are they going to reconcile that to their voting bloc and their constituents if that's what they have done or not done? How yeah. Do so, have a leg to stand on? so I think I can answer both of those questions in, in with one answer, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Um, the, the, the reason why they haven't been doing anything over the past seven years is one, because they, and I think this is the primary reason, they never in a million years thought they would actually be positioned to plausibly do anything about Obamacare. They just never thought it was going to happen. They were shocked by their own victory in November. And that's not speculation. Listen, I I wish I could disclose the names of people that I talked to in the days prior to the election but I'd be violent in confidences, and that's not something I do, and I don't want the, to get that reputation as being that guy. But suffice it to say, people who you wouldn't recognize, people who you would know, were, were conceding prior days, like within hours of the election, that it was going to be a huge loss for Republicans. Nobody expected, very few people expected that it was going to turn out the way that it did. And so they weren't prepared, number one. Number two, and we talked about this earlier in the program, is the left has an advantage in that they have a long-term vision for what they want to see government look like. The right does not. 
the right has no long-term vision. The the furthest your rank-and-file Republican sees is the next two years, specifically to their next election day. That's that's as far as they see. They don't have—and and everything—I've been in the room where, where strategy was being discussed with people who are in a position to shape it, and they have said explicitly— explicitly if it doesn't help us win we're not going to do it if it's going to cause a problem in the next election we are not going to pursue it that's the only thing they care about and and so long as that remains true then we're, we're going to continue to see the same results now um as to your your last point there in terms of what how the speech that we give or whatever to uh our our elected officials when we have the opportunity I, I wouldn't be as hostile as you might think. The question that I would ask is, what is it, and I appreciate your call, Mike. The question that I would ask is, how is the action that you've taken part of a plan to achieve long-term success with the conservative agenda? Where are we going and how are you going to get us there? That is the question that you ought to be asking. And respectfully, but sincerely and firmly. And I would I, I would like love to pop some popcorn and sit next to you and listen to the answer. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. So an emergent theme of the program tonight has been the effect, intentional and otherwise, of government intervention in the market. And sometimes that can manifest in very dramatic and uh, destructive ways. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 to join us in our final segment tonight. From the New York Post, not a, uh, not a source that I typically go to, but in this case I'll make an exception, a broke Manhattan chiropractor and his wife jumped to their deaths from an office building Friday, leaving suicide notes describing how they cannot live with their financial reality, law enforcement sources said. Glenn Scarpelli, 53, and Patricia Coolant, 50, who had carted trash bags filled with belongings from their home to the curb Thursday, leaped at around 5.45 a.m. from the ninth floor of the Madison Avenue building where they worked. Their bodies were found sprawled in the middle of East 33rd Street in Murray Hill. Inside each of their pockets was a suicide note and ID in a plastic baggie, presumably to make sure the letters didn't get too bloodied to read. Scarpelli titled his typed suicide note, We had a wonderful life. Patricia and I had everything in life. The dad of two wrote. But the note took a dark turn, describing the couple's financial spiral, sources said. Coolant's letter included contact information for family and friends and instructed that a specific person notify their children about their deaths, a law enforcement source said. Or a law enforcement source said. I just don't understand why this would happen, why they would do this to their kids, said Adam Lamb, a fellow chiropractor who was friends with the couple for 16 years. Records show the couple who lived in the financial district were drowning in debt and slammed with dozens of tax liens from both the federal and state government. But I feel like there's something else going on, Lamb said. Even with all that debt, it still doesn't make sense. Steve Bogan, a relative of the couple, called their double suicide very shocking. 
Right now, everybody's in a daze, he said. The couple described by several friends as warm, doting parents leave two children, Joseph, 19, and Isabella, 20, who recently graduated from the Upper East Side's uh, Lolia High School, where tuition is nearly $38,000 a year. Last year, Joseph said in a school speech that his parents once gave him advice on how to cope if he lost everyone I love. And uh, it goes on here to describe their financial situation. It says one lien against or uh, against uh, them from September showed the couple owed twenty three thousand three hundred four in federal taxes, while another in April twenty fifteen indicated a two hundred thirty two thousand two hundred ninety five dollar debt. In twenty thirteen, the feds took legal action against Scarapelli for failing to pay back a nearly sixty thousand dollar student loan he took out in two thousand while studying at the Logan College of Chiropractic uh, in Chesterfield. So. I share this, not just for its shock value, but because I sincerely believe, I sincerely believe that government and we, we the people, the culture that produces our government, bear some indirect responsibility for this couple's plight. Now, I, you know, not trying to take away for a moment their complicity, you know, their decision that they made, you know, that that's on them. But the context in which they made that decision, that's on the culture, that's on the government, a government which has tolerated and indeed perpetuated and promoted what I would call, and I know this is provocative, but I think it is technically accurate, student loan fascism. And by fascism, you know, because when you use that word, you think of, you know, goose-stepping and the Holocaust. That's not, that's Nazism. That's not what I'm talking about. Fascism is something, is something different. Fascism is a style of government. You know, it's distinct from the Nazis. Fascism is when government force combines with or overtakes private property, private operation, private corporations for the benefit of private parties under the control of the state. Is there any clearer way to describe the current student loan educational complex? Well, and under the current uh, student loan rules, if you get federally subsidized student loans, you can't liquidate them through bankruptcy. Right. And I think that this is an early sign of what we could see through a universal healthcare system. Whereas... The government is having private companies pay for uh, student loans and pay for health care insurance because the government believes, as little as they do in the free market, they still believe that private insurance companies know best how to keep costs down. Mm-hmm. Whereas if government takes it over, then there's no uh, price incentive, as we've seen with the ballooning cost of student tuition. Right. And therefore... Uh, the government realizes that they can't pay for it. Right. So because the government knows that, that, that they can't actually pay for a for student tuition nationwide, they force you to pay for it, and he can't liquidate that $60,000 in student right. loans. And, and thereby is revealed the flaw in their reasoning. You know, the idea that we're, we're by keeping, by basically by being fascistic, by having this, 
this uh, incestual relationship between public and private, this public-private partnership with the loan servicers, that they're somehow having the best of both worlds, right? They're having the price control of the private interest, the profit motive, while having the the high-minded guarantees, social responsibility of government. But in actuality, what they're doing is they're removing the essential balancing factor which enables price control in the free market, and that's risk. Risk. If why, why do you think the housing bubble popped? Why do you think it inflated in the first place? Because people knew that it was all upside and no downside. That's what the banks knew because they knew that their, to some extent their deposits were guaranteed. And beyond that, if things got bad enough, the government would bail them out, right? That is the elimination of risk. It's called the moral hazard where somebody else assumes your risk and you, you can either win or just not win today, but you never lose. And in that environment, there is no governing mechanism upon your risk-taking because you're not the one who has to bear the consequence. And that's what we see happening with student loans. It's the reason why you have degrees in women's studies, which would not exist in a free market because nobody in their right mind would pay real money that has to come out of their pocket or take on debt or, or forget about taking on the debt. Nobody would issue the debt. A bank is not going to give you a loan to go to school to learn about how oppressed you are because there ain't no money in being oppressed. And they're expecting to get their money back. And to, and to Brad's point, and I think this is the key piece, the exclusion of student loan debt from bankruptcy protection is if we could just make one reform to the system, that's the reform I would make. Mm-hmm. And get this. The student loan bubble now is affecting more people with greater amounts of money than the housing crisis did. Right. It's coming. Right. Now, you know, it. you might conflate that with student loan forgiveness. I don't, I don't think it's apples to apples because with student loan forgiveness, it's kind of like amnesty in the immigration sphere. Right. Where you just say this group of people were, is okay but then you don't change anything systematically going forward, right? So you end up with the same problem years down the road. It, well, and what they would do is that they would exclude people who don't, like, if they, the government would say, okay, you have a lot of student loan debt, but you've made good choices in your life, and you took right. the economic steps to, pay, to have the ability to pay for your student loans, and they would exclude you for it. Right, yeah, exactly. So what this would do is if, if we changed it tomorrow to where – you could you your student loans were subject to bankruptcy protection. You could declare bankruptcy and have them wiped out. Boy, nothing would have a greater instantaneous impact. The the post secondary educational infrastructure, the college system, the university system in this country would be turned on its head. It would be like flipping the game board because suddenly the the party would be over. And everybody would realize, my God, we actually have to provide value now. We actually have to provide a product that people are willing to not only stake their own money on, but that third parties in the form of financial institutions are willing to risk not getting paid back in order to take the risk 
to fund somebody's education. That is a significantly higher standard than exists today. And, and you know, the, it, again, I think of Jamar now every time I say this. From the left, they look at that and they think, well, you're depriving people of their opportunity to engage in education. No, you are saving them from the plight of this couple who jumped off a nine-story, out of a nine-story window because they found themselves buried in debt with no ability to pay it. You're saving people from that by forcing them through through the signals of economic reality to go down a path that's actually productive. That is the compassion of conservatism. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Glenn Beck is next. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk.